We're proud of members who write books or who edit books because to us that means that we're not an idle society and that reflects, their credit reflects to us. And with that feeling of pride, it gives me great pleasure to introduce the man with the beard, Pete Long. Thank you, Seymour, for an all-too-flattering introduction and greetings, members and guests and the representatives of World Publishing Company, who I'm very flattered are here tonight. But you know, for the first time in my life, I'm afraid of a public appearance this evening. At first, I was actually frightened to be here. Not so much from what you might say about my words, but knowing, as the general does and the rest of you, that an army moves on its stomach, you might remember something. The last time I had the honor of speaking to you was in conjunction with Otto Eisenschimmel, and, as luck would have it, it was also our notorious spam dinner at a prominent loop hotel. <laughs> but I see that I shouldn't really have worried very much. I can't help a slight plug for the Associated Press and news in general. And those of Southern sympathies in the audience may be interested in this news item from the AP wires. General Lee has beaten General Grant, at least in Tuesday's Illinois primary election. Robert E. Lee received one vote, a write-in, to none for Grant. <laughs> the identity of the Lee supporter is not known. Uh, when I had the privilege of speaking in Milwaukee, where, by the way, I was much impressed by their group, it was necessary to make some slight explanation of my beard. Of course, here it isn't. But I do want to call your attention to the fact that on last June's roundtable tour, I was not alone in the whisker department. <laughs> Our good friend Warren Reeder, whom I'm glad to see here tonight, put me to shame, in fact. Then, in September, to my great sorrow, that full-blown pursuit adornment was gone. I protested so vehemently that Warren agreed to raise another crop for this summer's trip. So far, I haven't noticed any sprawling, although he says he's about ready to start. But I just wanted to make this announcement so you can all watch the development of this project. But uh, seriously, I feel a bit lonely, nevertheless. I wish a certain gentleman with far more right to wear a beard than I could be here to make this a debate, a debate with the real author of Grant's memoirs. Of course, he was a fine collaborator to work with, the silent type. But there are still a great many questions I, and I know the rest of you, would like to ask Grant the soldier. Some of these have been answered in part by my recent studies. For instance, was Ulysses S. Grant a butcher of men a poor strategist, an inferior tactician, a drunken sot, anti-Semitic, hard-hearted, anti-press, corrupt, stupid, ruthless, ignorant, slow, stubborn, and so forth. Harper's Weekly once described him as the drunken Democrat whom the Republicans dragged out of the Galena gutter besmeared with the blood of his countrymen slain in domestic broil and lifted to a high pedestal as Malika their worship rules over the prostrate ruins of Washington's Republic. In short, was Grant 
a cigar-smoking, whiskey-drinking, nasty old man. <laughs> Probably no one held all these vile opinions of Grant at one time. But many of these derogatory comments were applied to him, along with others, by one person or another throughout his public career. Some of them are probably even held today. Personally, I'd always rated Grant as a slugging, rather dull, rather stupid man who plunged in and kept on going because he didn't know any other way to fight or do anything else. At first, he didn't show up very well against the rapier thrusts of Jackson or Forrest, against the genius of Lee, or even when compared with Thomas or Sherman. But some doubts had begun to rise in my mind even before Ralph Newman and the World Publishing Company approached me about doing notes and an introduction for a new one-volume edition of Grant's memoirs. Not that I am now completely convinced that he was the greatest soldier ever seen on this continent, as the current trend seems to indicate, but there are grounds for a new appraisal of Grant and for reassessing his value as a soldier. And somewhat to my surprise, when I got into the story, the actual story, the writing of the memoirs themselves, I found a Grant new to me, the inner man. The picture arises of people moving past a summer home perched on a low mountainside in New York. Many of them came from a long distance. They included the curious and hero worshippers and parents who wanted their children to see the great man. But the figure bundled in coats, blankets, scars, and a stocking cap did not see them. The withered old man was not disrespectful. He tried never to be and generally achieved it. He simply saw something else. As his pencil scrawled upon a pad, the gray, whiskered face looked out on other streams of people. These were men in uniforms of blue, butternut, and gray. They carried guns in their hands, and some with gleaming swords were hurrying them on. They appeared through the clouds of the past that covered such never-to-be-forgotten names as Fort Donelson, Shiloh, Vicksburg, Chattanooga, the Wilderness, Spotsylvania, the darker forms of Cold Harbor, Petersburg, and then Appomattox. Many of these soldiers had names. Sherman, Sheridan, Lee, Pemberton, Bragg, Thomas, Back of them were other shadowy figures not in uniform. Lincoln, Edwin M. Stanton, Jefferson Davis, Alexander Stevens. Ulysses S. Grant was nearing the end of his third, possibly his fourth career, and the end of his life, and he knew it. Lieutenant General of the United States, President, now a man of letters. For some time, as I say, he realized it would soon all be over. He had gazed intently at New York's skyline as the train pulled out from Mount McGregor and he'd been awakened in order to see once more the battlements of West Point on the Hudson where he had reluctantly gone so long ago. There is no use trying to see into a man in his last hours, or perhaps for that matter at any time. But General Grant unknowingly placed at least a glimpse of himself in those dictated and written pages he was finishing. He had told the matter-of-fact story of an American, a very ordinary man. A child born in Ohio in 1822, the nearly forgotten younger years, the education at West Point, the heroic but not too conspicuous part in the war with Mexico, and then the boredom of army garrison life and the seeming end of a military career. You all know the story. Next followed the decline of early middle age. Leaving the army, liquor, the poor farmer, and worst businessman. 
And at last, a dull, obscure job as a clerk in a Galena, Illinois leather store. The outbreak of war in the 60s didn't seem to mean too much personally at first, but Grant saw his duty and went along. You know, he didn't stay that way. Any kind of experiences was needed. Many others were further advanced at the start than he was. But taking things as they came, as he always had and always did, Grant was ready when called upon. There were mistakes. There was misjudgment. There were things he regretted. He told all of those. He left out only a few major things, except perhaps that problem of liquor. But after all, who could have really written about that? There were the war years, the near defeat at Shiloh, the victories, and that talk with General Lee at the end. Of course, he'd been president for two terms, but that was not part of the story. Grant the soldier was the real man. The rest was anticlimax. Only now could that story be relived so others could share it. Then, of course, a bit mundane, but nevertheless true, what a boon it would be to his thin pocketbook. Grant had never really been a literary man. He had written letters like everyone else. Some of them are full of meaning. He had written hundreds of orders, and they are usually clear, concise, and definite. The presidency had called for words, but there were secretaries to help. Several times he'd been approached about his story of the Civil War. Once he had stated he might put down some notes that his family could do with what they wished after he was gone. But he had not reckoned with the fact that actual poverty might strike again as it had in St. Louis before the war. It must be admitted that Grant was not too much of a businessman, to say the least. He took people at face value. It is probable that he didn't entirely realize this. Although he knew he'd made business mistakes, he couldn't help it. He also knew that the use of his name in an investment firm would help. And Ferdinand Ward was a persuasive young man, too persuasive. Putting it mildly, Ward, by manipulations, fake investment, secret deal, had bankrupted Grant, most of the Grant family, and had royally fleeced far better businessmen than the old soldier. It must have been a disheartening, embarrassing experience when the Grants had to borrow money to live on and accept gifts of cash after the collapse and Ward had gone to jail. For some time prior to the summer of 1885, Grant had known that he was a very sick man. His throat was painful, and there was constriction at the base of his tongue. Times this cancer was better, but there were other times when he could not talk, could only take liquid nourishment. From the words of this book, the doctors apparently didn't fool him at all. He knew the trouble, knew there was no real cure. But he had to have money to live on and to leave to his family. The requests for him to write became more frequent. But during his days with the investment firm, he didn't really feel the need of it. He wanted to enjoy life and take it easy. The Century Magazine had long been planning its famous series of articles on the Civil War to be written by surviving generals and soldiers, both North and South. This later, as you know, is Battles and Leaves. 
It was apparent, of course, that without Grant's story, they wouldn't have too much success, at least publicity-wise. Once an offer was refused, but realizing in part the position of the family, the Century made a new offer, what they thought was generous, $500 apiece for four articles. Grant accepted rather unwillingly, and the first effort was dry, factual, very short, and very uninteresting. Urged to put in some of the human elements of the battle at Shiloh, Grant tried again and succeeded. Century got three articles, paid $500 each for them, which they apparently, as I say, thought was a very good price. Later, they added a bonus check of $1,500, and well, they might. They also made tentative arrangements for the memoirs. But then Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, entered the picture. The humorist had been in the habit of dropping in on Grant in New York and smoking a cigar with him. Having heard of the articles, Twain asked Grant about the memoirs, and the general told him of the proposed financial arrangement. The humorist was aghast. He felt that the century didn't know the value of either the article or the book. Finally, he made a generous arrangement with Grant for publication of two volumes of memoirs. The Grant family netted about $450,000 from the books. In two and a half years, 312,000 sets were sold throughout the land by the Charles L. Webster Company, a subscription book firm headed by Twain. The average price was $9 for two volumes. That apparently included the leather-covered cloth and the various offers that salesmen of those days made. Books were high-priced even then. The publisher, obviously, was fond of Grant, and, as he states, wanted the aging general to be independent financially again, as a lot of people did, while Grant tried to see it that Twain profited also. Grant wanted no more gifts. Much of the work was done in New York City. But all the while, he was growing weaker. At times, he was able to dictate, and the work progressed rapidly. At other times, he was unable to speak at all, or could only write. Several times during 1884, Grant was believed to be near death. But each time, he recovered. He became more and more deeply attached to his project. It was a race with death. And like his races on the battlefield, he won. After completing the chapter on Chattanooga and Missionary Ridge, however, work was suspended when Grant suffered a severe hemorrhage. In the summer of 1885, it was thought he would be more comfortable at the health resort of Mount McGregor, north of New York. He was here, wrapped in blankets and spending much of his time on his porch. The Grant at last finished the books, an 11-month task. And it was here on July 23, 1885, that Ulysses S. Grant died, his work completed a short week before. But what of the book itself, this last gift to the nation? Was it just the hurried, half-remembered ramblings of a dying man? Despite a few authors, it is difficult to conceive of it in that light. Grant had been in many ways a meticulous soldier and he was an equally careful writer. Although he did not have handy access, at least, to the official records as we know them now, he did see some of the early volumes 
others were being prepared. But he had his own dispatch books and memories. The general worried a great deal, he indicates from various letters, about making the story honest and accurate. It can be said that for the most part, he succeeded. Of course, he needed help. Members of his family took dictation, aided in research, and in general tried to be useful. But General Grant wrote his own memoirs. Adam Bideau, a member of Grant's staff, an author of the familiar three-volume military history of U.S. Grant, also was called in and undoubtedly did help consider. But the part of Grant of Bideau is questionable. After Grant's death, he made the preposterous implication that he actually wrote the memoirs, which in the opinion of all historians I can find is absurd. Badeau also demanded, or is reported to have demanded, $10,000 from the Grant family for work he had done on the books. And apparently he was paid by someone, probably the family. Perhaps some of you could help me on that. Badeau kept up his talk, however, for many years after that, and the story still goes on. The Grant is generally an accurate, careful writer, as I say, can't be denied. There are, of course, some errors. Like many generals, he is prone to exaggerate the strength of his enemy and belittle his own. He doesn't do this quite as much, though, as, let's say, McClellan. It is very difficult, in fact impossible, to arrive at accurate figures on numbers engaged in battle casualties. The official records are in themselves not wholly correct, most historians have arrived at different figures. We can't go out and count them today. Any autobiography is naturally full of opinions, and this isn't any exception to say the least. Most of them are fully drawn, while a few are partially inaccurate. Where there is doubt, I've made a footnote to try to explain it, but the reader must remember that these are Grant's words, his ideas, his opinions. As to his appraisals of people, they're there and intriguing, but there is a sincere effort to be impartial, as I shall show. Grant apparently always tried, as I have said, to be fair, and except in one or two cases where later research has brought new light to certain generals, such as Thomas, he succeeded. Other memoirs are full of complaints. You can think of several. About lack of support by the government, lack of supplies, lack of troops, lack of everything. Take McClellan's bombastic own story, for instance. Just compare it a few minutes, and I know which one you'll pick up afterwards. But this isn't so of Grant. He is, for the most part, uncomplaining and working with what he had. Of course, in a few controversies, he has decided opinions. And I've tried to fill in the other side, at least for the general reader. How was this volume received? As has been seen, it was a financially a success. People still remembered Grant as a war hero, were willing to overlook the sometimes unfortunate years of the presidency. It was as a soldier that he won the hearts of America, and as a soldier he remained a great historical figure. There are trends in history, you're all familiar with them, like men, those in many other fields. One day a general or statesman is up, and the next day he's down in the opinion of writers and the populace. Grant suffered these ups and downs during the war, and afterwards, may continue even now. Despite his great victories, people felt for many years that he was a butcher of man and merely used manpower to win. I'm going to try to temper that opinion somewhat. His use of troop movement and strategy 
rather than battle tactics, has more recently come to the fore and is probably a more accurate evaluation. We hope that the republication of these memoirs will help to bring about a better understanding. At the time, the book was enthusiastically received. The British writer and critic Matthew Arnold used the opportunity, as was his wont, to take new pokes at America and its people. But nevertheless, he expressed approval, saying, its great value is in the character which quite simply and unconsciously it draws of Grant himself. However, the London Spectator is half-hearted uh, when it says there was not a battle piece worth quoting. They were thinking of the more florid European style of writing. They were also thinking of the battlefield tactician, not Grant the strategist. But voicing the opinion of the majority of publications, in this country at least, the Atlantic Monthly, in a lengthy review, highly lauded Grant's writing, his style, and his work as a general. The Atlantic said, the author never poses nor attitudinizes, never wavers for a moment from his purpose to tell plain facts in the plainest possible way. He does not even allow himself the luxury of vehemence against fate or fortune or inevitable destiny. He is perfectly content to stand for what he was, a combination of plain and almost commonplace qualities developed to a very high power and becoming at length the equivalent of what we call military genius. Those are the words of the Atlantic. How is this book considered today? Many literary men and historians, and I've been surprised at how many literary men, proclaim it a classic to rank with Caesar. Some feel that its frankness, its unpretentious straightforwardness show a literary style that probably, fortunately, Grant himself never realized. Therefore, it ranks among the greatest of war memoirs. Never dull it is the vibrant, live story of a man told in everyday words, such as many of us think of our own lives. Here is no plea, as they say, for his part, no excuses, just the facts as he sees them, which, after all, is about the best any of us can do. In this day of a new set of war experiences, Grant still shines out and compares most favorably with admittedly fine accounts of World War II. I have one regret, and it's a profound one. It is that the late Lloyd Lewis, author of Captain Sam Grant, was not here to be consulted, or better still, to do the job. Lewis, ever a fine writer and a great historian, had this to say about Grant's memoirs in those moving letters to his publisher. I have the evidence clear now that Grant's superb style of writing is what Sherman and Mark Twain thought it, the best of any general since Caesar. And in another letter, Lewis writes, his soul is in the memoirs, one of the swiftest narratives in military history. It drives right through from beginning to end. It has his movement. Outwardly, he looked like the statue upon which patience sits forevermore. 
and he could be patient and wait, but only by very great self-control. Now let us take a brief critical look, try to tear it down a little bit, some of the controversial things in the memoirs themselves. And they're there. You may remember the period when Grant was with the Army in California, the time of homesickness, worries, and drunkenness, when he couldn't even afford to have his family with him. An incident that ended in his leaving the Army, at least under a cloud, to be generous. Grant writes, those early days in California brought out character. Well, the apparent character, at least to us, that they brought out in Grant was not so praiseworthy, at least what we could see of at that time. The drink paid a large part in the conclusion of his early army career, there can't be any doubt. Let's face it, Grant drank. Also, it can be proven how I feel that homesickness, the absence of his family, and Grant's hidden sensitiveness led him to the bottle that he couldn't or wouldn't resist. And we all know those numerous stories, some of which probably are legends, of his being drunk many times in many battles on important occasions. Personally, I feel that most of these accounts are exaggerated, although some of them are undoubtedly true. But I have a theory, I don't think can be proven, that Grant couldn't hold his liquor. It was the main problem. Many a general drank a great deal, as did many people in those days. We know of Hooker, we know of lots of others. Wasn't unusual, and for that part, not a subject of very much criticism, except few limited classes of people. My guess is Grant simply couldn't hold it as well as some others. Jumping to the end of the Civil War, Grant wrote in his memoirs his opinion of the conflict, which is different from the one generally held. He states, it is probably well that we had the war when we did. We are better off now than we would have been without it and have had more rapid progress than we otherwise should have made. He then refers to industrial and commercial expansion, world opinions, and other facets of the growth of the nation following the war. However, it's a little hard to see that these things wouldn't have come about even if there hadn't been a war or that had been earlier. Turning to the war itself, I'll pick the weakest chapter in the book for a minute, Shiloh. Grant was at fault, and for once I don't feel he sufficiently admits it. For instance, he implies censure of General Prentice, hero of the hornet's nest and did so much to hold back, at least temporarily, the Confederate charge. He credits Prentice with courage and states that it is not true that Prentice and his division were captured in their beds. Well, this story is too ridiculous to have been included. Why reflect on the man? He also states that Prentice's division did not fall back with the others, and this left his flanks exposed and enabled the enemy to capture him. However, Prentice says in his report that Grant made a tour of the front and ordered Prentice, quote, to maintain that position at all hazards. We know that he did just that. Grant feels there was no surprise at shot. Well, that's a doubtful conclusion, I think. He says the Union troops began the fight by opening fire upon the enemy. 
Who was doing the advancing? Perhaps the Union troops did open fire on Confederate skirmishers, but the attack was definitely begun by the Confederates. Then, too, Grant did not feel trenches or defenses were needed, as they were not good for the morale of the army. And he later changed his mind considerably about this, as did most generals. He considers the battle a Union victory, but he takes a little too much credit, a doubtful credit. He seems to overlook the moral effect of Buell's reinforcements, as well as their military effect. And it is again the consensus of opinion that Buell deserves more credit than Grant gives him for the final repulse of the Confederates. Because of its argumentative points, this is one of the most interesting chapters in the whole set, however. Now then was Grant anti-Semitic. The charge has been made on the surface with very good reason. However, recent research particularly, such as that by Rabbi Bertrand W. Korn in his fine book, American Jewry in the Civil War, certainly shows that Grant was basically not anti-Semitic. It is a pity that he doesn't mention, Grant that is, doesn't mention the famous order number 11 in the memoirs. I wish he had. And there is no certainty, of course, who was actually responsible for this order. Perhaps it came from Stanton, from Halleck, perhaps not. Perhaps from Grant's own headquarters. However, Rabbi Korn points out there are no other incidents like it in Grant's life, and that he often appointed Jews to high places. One possible explanation that certainly does not excuse the order is that the term Jew was often used to apply to all merchants, peddlers, and so forth around the camps. At times, such people did become a nuisance. There was exploitation of the soldiers, but not only by these peddlers, but by the soldiers themselves. It was certainly, at least, not a racial or religious issue and shouldn't have been so treated. For many years, there has been what I like to call the myth of Cold Harbor, arising from that unnecessary assault. Grant writes, I have always regretted that last assault on Cold Harbor was ever made. I might say the same thing of the assault of the 22nd of May, 1863 at Vicksburg. At Cold Harbor, no advantage whatever was gained to compensate for the heavy loss we sustained. Indeed, the advantage other than those of relative losses, were on the Confederate side. Before that, the Army of Northern Virginia seemed to have acquired a wholesome regard for the courage, endurance, and soldierly qualities, generally, of the Army of the Potomac. They no longer wanted to fight them, one Confederate to five Yanks. Indeed, they seemed to have given up any idea of gaining any advantage of their antagonist in the open sea. Those were Grant's words. As to the Vicksburg assault specifically, Grant says there was more justification. He thought the Confederates were softer and that the hot weather might have worn them out. Perhaps he put too much trust in hot weather. Wasn't it hot for the Union troops too? It is clear that the Cold Harbor assault was a mistake, in my opinion. There are those who feel that such an attack was proper but wrongly executed. Famous British critic, General Fuller, said that Grant should have driven a wedge into the Confederate line, thrown in reserves, and broken through or tried to, rather than making a general frontal attack. The reason for any attack at all is that Grant realized 
that if he didn't do it, he might be construed as failure at a time when Northern morale was low. Furthermore, he thought, as expressed in his memoirs, that Lee was weakening and that this final push might be sufficient to hurry an end to hostilities, possible peace, or perhaps destroy the army of Northern Virginia. Grant vastly underestimated <coughs> Lee in this case. But unlike other Union generals, he was not permanently beaten, and he continued his brilliant strategic movement to the James and eventual victory. However, the nation rose up in indignation. The New York Times said that Grant had provided either a cripple or a corpse for half the homes of the North. The election was coming on. Lincoln's position was by no means felt secure, at least. There were those who wanted to negotiate a peace. In addition, there was war weariness, never-growing casualties. But this battle was thusly given a prominence that it doesn't deserve. With it came that juggling of figures of losses which has created problems for historians even today. The man in the street still thinks of Grant as the butcher of Cold Harbor. Fuller states that Lee's losses were light. We know that. But Grant's not excessive. The best figures I can arrive at for the actual assault, June 3rd, were a total of 5,617, 5,600 casualties, of which 1,100 were killed. This is based on official record and consensus where the other people and officials have gotten, apparently gotten their figures. Many historians, as I say, have taken published figures of the time or have taken the total casualties for the period June 1st to 12th, which is given in many records, or have taken the total casualties as killed, apparently. William C. Church, in his usually reliable grant, says, within an hour, nearly 12,000 dead and wounded Union soldiers lay in front of the enemy's trenches. Sandberg, in Storm Over the Land, says, in four days of assault, 10,000 Union troops were lost. In volume three of his Lincoln, Sandberg's a little closer to the others, with 3,000 lost in 22 minutes, and 7,000 dead already for the hospital on the night of June 3rd. Milton in conflict says 12,000 in two hours. Pratt in ordeal by fire says 5,000 lost in 10 minutes. But they don't break these figures down. What is lost? James G. Randall says 12,000 were killed or wounded in the assault. Quoting Livermore's figures for the campaign, apparently, rather than just the attack, because Livermore gives 12,000 for the entire campaign and said not more than 7,000 for the actual assault in total casualties. Well, for the campaign as a whole, Grant doesn't break it down onto the assault. He gives that June 1st to 12th figures, which have confused apparently a lot of people, giving 1,769 killed for a total of slightly over 10,000 casualties. Feister, in a statistical record, gives 1,900 killed out of almost 15,000 for the same period. So you can clearly see the confusion, not only as to the figures, but as to the length of the assault. It even extends to the name of the battle, which Losing calls Cool Arbor. I don't know where he got that. But the apparent actual total casualties 
And I say that's not because of the low figure, but because it looks obvious where others got higher ones. We're 5,600 and certainly not more than 7,000 for the assault. Well, this isn't excessive compared to other battles. It's too many, shouldn't have been done. Nevertheless, I don't think it demonstrates butcher. I'm not justifying it, however. But let us turn to some overall casualty figures to see if Grant was really a butcher. Fuller supplies a summary. I've checked it best I can. On May 4th, 1864, Grant had about 115,000 men. From then to June 14th, during the battles in the wilderness, cold ever, he received about 47,000 reinforcements for a total of about 162,000. Lee had 62,000, received 12,000 for 74. All right, Grant had 162, Lee 74, approximately. Grant's losses in total for the campaign were well, it's awfully hard to arrive at an exact figure, but we're 55,000 total casualties, wounded, killed, missing, so forth. Or as far as to possible to estimate Lee's were um, 31,800, but this didn't count some minor operation. Fuller gives these figures, and uh, Lee will take it 33,000. Casualties of Lee, 33,000. Casualties of Grant, 55,000. Grant had 100 and 62,000 men, and Lee 74. Now that gives percentages of loss to the total. Grant 34%, Lee 43. Now Fuller says that uh, Lee, if anybody, was more to be accused of sacrificing men. Well, I don't feel the charge holds true for either man. Their personalities just don't fit the roles of butcher. Two recent books have added much to Lincoln's stature as a strategist and a military chief of staff in the state. Both T. Harry Williams and the late Colin Ballard believe Grant was a great general. Williams even places him ahead of Lee, which is a highly doubtful distinction in my opinion. But these two authorities differ on one main point, about the only one that they differ on to any great extent. That is to the extent to which Grant was influenced by Lincoln after he took command in the East. In the military genius of Abraham Lincoln, Ballard says, if Lincoln and Grant had opened their hearts to each other in the first interview, such disorganization as Early's raid on Washington could have been avoided. He believed they should have operated in much closer unison. Williams says in Lincoln and his generals that despite the memoirs, Grant did not run the war as he pleased. Williams says Lincoln didn't know the details of Grant's plan, but he knew their broad outline. Most historians, however, take the hands-off viewpoint. The evidence isn't too strong, but I believe Grant in his memoirs is weak on this point. Perhaps he thought he had complete control. And I believe a study of personalities and underlying currents show that Lincoln kept a close eye on things, nevertheless. The president hadn't forgotten previous failures of highly touted generals. Lincoln had learned to watch, perhaps without speaking so much, 
But it is inconceivable that he let go the reins quite so much as Grant and some historians feel. Turning to his opinions of various generals, which is the most interesting part of the book, although it's scattered throughout, Grant in several instances criticizes Thomas for his slowness in attack and following through. Most authorities cannot agree. I can't either. Grant does say that Thomas possessed valuable soldierly qualities to an eminent degree. He praises him further. He says his dispositions were deliberately made and that he could not be driven from a point he was given to hold. He does note, however, that Thomas was not as good in pursuit as he was in action. Grant does not believe that he could ever have conducted Sherman's army from Chattanooga to Atlanta against the defenses and the commander guarding that line in 1864. On the other hand, Grant says that if Thomas had been ordered to hold the line that Johnston tried to hold, neither Johnston nor Sherman nor any other officer could have done it better. Of Stanton, Grant says the Secretary of War never questioned his, that is Stanton's, own authority to command, unless resisted. Grant often resisted. On the other hand, he says Lincoln was entirely different. Lincoln, quote, preferred yielding his own wish to gratify others, rather than to insist upon having his own way. Perhaps that's where Grant got some of the idea that he was running. Throughout the book, Grant's warm friendship and admiration for Sherman is self-evident. There's little or nothing said about McClellan. I'm sorry to say, I wish there was. Of others, Grant says that Meade was an officer of great merit, with drawbacks to his usefulness that were beyond his control. His temper ran away from him, and he didn't always study the direction to take after taking advantage of the lay of the ground. Well, Grant's opinion here may be a little harsh. I'd like to have that discussed. Of Burnside, then he was liked and respected, but not fitted to command an army, and he knew it. This is generally agreed upon. Grant regards Hooker as a dangerous man. Maybe Elmer here could tell us if that's libelous or not. He said he was not subordinate to his superiors, was overly ambitious, and cared nothing for the rights of others. And strong, but perhaps accurate evaluation. Grant praises Hancock highly, as he does Sedgwick and Terry. But if Sedgwick, Grant says that he seemed to dread responsibility. Grant states that Sedgwick declined the Army of the Potomac once, if not oftener. Well, I find no direct evidence of this, although it was rumored in the papers and press at the time. Perhaps some of you can help me. In my opinion, Sedgwick was a pretty fair general, somewhat underrated and not too seldom thought of, probably due to his own personality. One of the most interesting of Grant's strategic proposals was the Mobile Plan, which he was not allowed to carry out. Grant wanted to continue pressing the attack after the fall of Vicksburg. He suggested to Halleck a campaign against Mobile, starting from New Orleans. After what Grant believed would be an easy capture, troops could have been pushed north against Bragg, forming the pinchers with Rosecrans to force Bragg back into Georgia. This would probably have been a good plan, perhaps would have been brought about earlier into the war. By the way, uh, our good friend uh, Norman Fitzgerald, whom I hope will speak to you on Mobile, 
said in Milwaukee when I questioned him instead of having him question me that it was a perfect plan that the city could have been captured and probably should have been done. Grant knew how to live off the country, how to move, and he was anxious always to do it. But Halleck, if not Lincoln, turned him down, and Halleck seems to prefer the movement against Texas and the Trans-Mississippi rather than any campaign east of the Mississippi. Grant felt his plans could have cut much of the Confederacy. It was a large overall strategic plan. It shows Grant's thinking of the war as a whole, not just an isolated battle or section, but as a broad, modern concept. Williams and Ballard in praising Lincoln as a strategist don't mention this plan, recognized it perhaps that it should have been done. But it was turned down in Washington. Later, Grant says ruefully that for two years he advocated this expedition against Mobile when its possession would have been of greatest advantage. He said it finally cost lives to take it when possession was of no importance and when, if left alone, it would, within a few days, have fallen into our own hands without any bloodshed whatever. This overall outlook, which Grant had, did not come all at once, although he never restricted his military thinking to a single state or area. It must remember that Grant had a few minor though independent commands, before being thrust into the really big jobs. Some other Union generals didn't have this opportunity, or at least were subordinates and didn't hold independent positions. This doesn't detract from Grant, but shows how he continuously grew. Turning to a summing up, there's some question as to whether Grant was a great tactician once his troops were brought to a certain battlefield. But by utilizing this movement and strategic positions to the best advantage, in nearly every case, he was able to overcome what deficiencies he might have had in a tactical sense. Grant was that unusual type of man who in normal times was incapable of raising himself above the mass. But when things were at their worst, an abnormal situation arose, he rose with it, keeping his head, learning the lessons, and generally coming through. Grant the man, as well as the soldier, grows on the reader of the memoirs. By some, the Union commander has seemed highly overrated, but to the reader, as to the nation during the war, Grant grows and grows. One probes deeper into the wreck. It is not a picture to be gained overnight, but one sensed, thoroughly American, a picture we hope posterity will feel has been repeated in more recent times. From the ordinary folks that all of us start out as will come tomorrow's Grants. It has been the lesson of this country that from its people come not only the materials of war, but its great leaders. It is wise to remember his words to maintain peace in the future, it is necessary to be prepared for war. He was a plain, inconspicuous man, such as many of us are or see every day. A man whom history touched, not always with crowns of success, but touched with greatness, and never a statuesque or above the world, but human and of the earth. A man of common sense, who largely kept his plans, his hopes, his ambitions, and his sorrows to himself. Grant had self-confidence. Without it, there couldn't have been any strategically great Vicksburg campaign. But there was no real conceit. He never turned back from a project, nor yet was he really an Iron Man. He tried not to cause offense, but when he tackled a problem, he was stubborn to a degree that wrought victories, sometimes errors. But if there were errors, he usually owned up to them. To war, Grant brought these attributes. He saw conflict simply, and it is perhaps this simplicity that led him to be the great city wise.
The most revealing of all to me while looking for this inner man is a memorandum the dying general wrote to his physician when he could no longer speak. It may be found in that excellent book by Horace Green, General Grant's Last Stand. Grant wrote to Dr. J.H. Douglas, a verb is anything that signifies to be, to do, to suffer. I signify all. Thank you, and you now may open fire. Thank you.